I'd like to encourage you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and join me in the book of Philippians in chapter 4. I believe that it is the responsibility of a preacher to take a complex scriptural issue and make it easy to understand. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to take an easy to understand scriptural command and I'm going to complicate it. I'm going to do it intentionally because I think we're going to understand what the mandate is telling us to do. I just don't know if we'll fully comprehend what it is we're doing within the mandate. And Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 certainly clearly gives us a mandate, a command, something we should be doing. Here's what I know. Life happens. It's happening right now. Time marches inexorably onward. Our faith encounters doubt. Temptation ceaselessly approaches and attacks us, looking for every weakness that we have, and we have many. Satan, who is our adversary, is as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour and whose life he can ruin. He's the accuser of the brethren. He is the father of lies. Our needs, which are many, at times overwhelm us. Sickness comes. Sometimes sickness doesn't leave. Our finances come and our finances too often leave and disappear from us. According to statistics that exist within our world, divorce looms for too many marriages. Loneliness is suffocating. Friends and people that are near us betray us. In addition to all of that, we have decisions and choices that we are making constantly. And they can paralyze us. And worries that we encounter that can strangle us. And career arcs that can stall out. These challenges are very real and they confront every one of us. And according to Philippians chapter 4, we as believers have a go-to option in navigating all that life throws at us. Look with me in Philippians chapter 4. I'll read just one verse, verse 6, where the Bible says, be careful for nothing. What that is communicating is simply this, be filled with care for not one thing. Don't be anxious or filled with care about anything. Here is your option. But... The Bible says, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. If I were to sum that verse up as simply as I could communicate it, it would probably be this, everything by prayer, always. Everything by prayer, always. In fact, I think prayer is the great reminder that no matter what life throws at us, you can do it because God can. If we took scriptural principles and things that we're supposed to or expected by God to do, we might find in it our own flaws and weaknesses. But when we remember what prayer is for us, we realize we can do it. In fact, you can turn the other cheek. You can determine your response. You can go the second mile. That's what Jesus expects his disciples to do. 
You can love those that hate you. And yes, even you, as lovable as you are, have some haters. The fact is, you can bless those who persecute you. You can forgive people who offend you, even if they do so seven times in one day. You can overcome evil with good. It is possible to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You can give thanks in all circumstances. You can count it all joy, no matter the trial or the temptation or the tribulation or the trouble that assaults you. You and I can determine our response. How? Prayer. Prayer is the great reminder that we can because God can. One author was communicating what Christianity is to an uninitiated person, someone who had no concept of Christianity. He said it is this. A Christian isn't necessarily nicer than anybody else. He's just better informed. You don't have the capacity in you to just be nicer because you're superior to an unbeliever or superior to the rest of the world. But we have prayer. We are just better informed. Life at times gives me no option. Christ always does. One option that I have is to go to God in prayer. Now I said a moment ago, I know that I am supposed to take complex scriptural principles and make them easy to understand. I just gave to you a very simple scriptural mandate. Everything by prayer always. And now I want to unpack it a little bit. And in doing so, I'm going to take that simple mandate and maybe complicate it for a moment in time so that we can better understand how to fulfill the mandate that scripture has just told us. Here's the question that I would ask. If the Bible says everything by prayer always, my question would be, what then is prayer? What is prayer? I think perhaps all of us may have a different understanding or a different application of what prayer is. If we were to take the time to study world religion, we would realize that prayer, or maybe it'd be better said this, at least something like prayer exists in pretty much every major world religion. If we were to study out Islam, we would note that there is a time where they are summoned To pray on their knees facing Mecca with their heads to the floor. If we were to study out Judaism, we would note that there was a repetitive prayer, kind of a formal liturgy. Particular holy sites, like maybe the Western Wall in Jerusalem, where worshipers would take scraps of paper with those requests on them and those supplications and place them into the wall. Even in Buddhism, they would have what they call a state of cognitive tranquility. It's hard to communicate to Christians what prayer is. Can you imagine trying to communicate what cognitive tranquility is? That's even harder. They would have a meditative state that they would enter into. Roman Catholicism would be influenced by a monastic tradition. They would have teachings about Mary and they would incorporate physical elements like prayer beads and formulaic prayers, even historic Protestantism. When you go back and you realize the reformers wanted prayers to be desperately understood by the common man as opposed to a Latin confession which they could not comprehend, they wanted them to be scriptural and spiritual. Even the Anglican church has the book of common prayer, exceedingly formal 
to us with our modern minds, but when it was first produced, it was based on Scripture, spoke to an intimacy with God, which was kind of a newfound thought that they were combating. What I'm saying to you is prayer is pretty much a part of every major religion, and what that means is that people have all different ideas about it. It's a meditative state. It's a place. It's a posture that I am supposed to assume. What is prayer? Again, I reiterate that even the foundation for our study is the command in Scripture of Philippians 4, 6. Everything by prayer, always. This is all throughout the Bible. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I would be able to say to you, you should have a lifestyle of prayer. I don't mean that you should have a prayer time, though maybe that is helping in having a lifestyle of prayer. But you should have a lifestyle of prayer. Listen to the scripture. In Romans chapter 12, which is a very practical passage of scripture, in verse 12 we read this, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, always and ever at a ready state to offer up prayer. That is the hallmark of a disciple of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're talking in Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare. We realize that we are not battling flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. We are engaged in an invisible spiritual warfare. And Paul says this, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. He's writing to the believers at Colossae, and he says this to them in Colossians 4, 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Continue, continue in prayer. In 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter is writing, and he writes this, but the end of all things is at hand. We are in the last times. Spiritual warfare is spiking. What do we do? He says, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. In 1 Thessalonians, perhaps you are familiar with this one. Paul, as he is closing out his first letter, says to those at Thessalonica, Christian, pray without ceasing. It should be a lifestyle. It should be a habit of communicating in the intimate relationship that we have with God our Father in heaven. In fact, prayer is the number one option for changing our world. I think if we were to assess the church and the message of the gospel as impractical in the world that we live in, it's not because the gospel is impractical. It is because those of us who are supposed to be disciples of Christ have shown no practical application of the gospel's power in our lives. Maybe the church and the message is impotent because believers like us are not praying as we should be praying. It is the one reliable option that we have. In a world where we feel like we exert no control, we can change our world through prayer. Moses understood that. When the burden of leading the children of Israel got the best of him, Moses prayed. When King Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament didn't know what to do about the coalition of nations that were planning to attack him, he prayed. Is what Nehemiah did when he received the bad news about the broken down walls of Jerusalem and the work that had ceased. And God equipped him with a burden to go back and rebuild the walls. An insurmountable, impossible seeming task. 
He prayed about it. It's what David did when he was running for his life from Saul when he was hiding in the cave. It's what Daniel did. Even though he knew praying to God meant the lion's den, meant his life, he prayed with his windows open towards the temple in Jerusalem because of his people in bondage. It's what the church did at Mary's house. The night before Peter was to be executed and God miraculously frees him from prison. It's what Paul and Silas did when they themselves were sitting in jail on some trumped up charges. It's what Jesus himself did before the agony of the cross in the garden of Gethsemane. I'm saying to you, line upon line, precept upon precept, principle after principle, all throughout scripture, we should be praying and yet... It's largely neglected. Throughout church history, even if we were to study practical church history, not church with air conditioning and and heat. Why would I go to air conditioning first? It's January. I actually work on this and I said air conditioning first. Sorry. Not church with heat and really nice chairs and exceptional communication from the stage. Not that kind of church. Talk about church history way back when. When they would teach the most important building blocks of the faith. If you're a disciple of Christ, you need to know like Acts chapter 2, the apostles' doctrine, the commands of Jesus Christ. You have to know what the apostles said. They would want you to know the Ten Commandments. Here's the expectation of a holy God. Here's what it looks like to obey a holy God. Here's how you are aware you fail in your obedience to a holy God. And they would want to teach you how to pray. Those three things were the pillars That was the foundation, the apostles' doctrine, what we believe. The Ten Commandments, what holy God is like and what it looks like to obey or disobey Him. And prayer, how to talk to that holy God so that we can live our lives out successfully. We sing that old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. It's foundational. I don't know about you. You probably key into things better than I do. But sometimes I sing or I say things and I don't think about what I'm singing or I'm saying. And that song says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and grieves to bear. That's really theological, right? Then it goes on and it says, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Now listen to this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We forfeit peace in our lives because we do not pray. Now, we would imagine, because we have been conditioned to think like this, the circumstances of life, be it my finances or my health or my career, have robbed me of peace And I would say to you, along the lines of that doctrinal song, we forfeit our peace. Even the verse after Philippians 4, 6, when we get into verse 7, if we will pray, he writes, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We forfeit peace. If our lives are in a state of unrest, If we lie awake at night with our spirits troubled and in turmoil, instead of at peace, we've given it up ourselves. Oh, what needless pain we bear. We carry burdens. We carry cares. 
We feel anxiety. We are care-filled. And it is a needless state of unrest. Because the Bible has taught us, cast all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. Be anxious for nothing. Be filled with care for not one thing. You are carrying needless pain. You are surrendering peace when you do not pray. What in the world is it? Prayer. Well, I know this. Prayer is a declaration that we believe in the one true God. Now, I referenced the major world religions, right? Is prayer a posture? Is prayer an act? Is prayer a physical element? Is prayer a place? Is it a meditative state? I can say to you that prayer as believers is a declaration that we believe in the one true God. All the way back in the garden, God created us in his image. And he created us with the capacity to commune with him. Adam and God walked in the garden and communed with one another. Now listen to Isaiah as he talks. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it and set an order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And all the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. When I pray, I am acknowledging the theological foundation for prayer is that there is one true God. And I am acknowledging as well that I must communicate with God in his devised and designed method. Jesus told the woman at the well, we worship in spirit and in truth. You cannot just go to God on your own terms. You cannot just be creative about how you communicate with God. He has designed it so that prayer is how we communicate with him. Ask Cain and Abel if you can just decide how you want to express yourself in worship to God. It doesn't work like that. Jesus taught us to pray. And he taught us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We have been taught to communicate with the one true God by prayer. That's important for us to fully comprehend and for us to understand. We can't just go to God any way that we want. We must go to him in prayer, boldly coming before the throne of grace. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I know this, prayer is not in and of itself a therapeutic act. Sometimes we think, if I can just get alone. You ever, you ever feel that way? I need seclusion. I got to get away from this situation. I got to get out of this pressure-filled moment. I just have to get alone. And if I can just get alone and start talking, I can find that it is therapeutic. Listen, sometimes prayer is anti-therapy. Because it is disruptive. It is aligning our life with the will of God. Prayer is not manipulation of God. We're not trying to find the right formula or say the right words. 
We're not trying to find some secret code to force God to answer us and manipulate God. That really destroys a lot of the asceticism that we see within prayer the world over. Prayer is not manipulating God. I mean, after all, if God's will is truly perfect, why would we want to manipulate him into doing something else? Something according to our will. Now, I want to be careful because as I established a moment ago with scriptural illustrations, the Bible does tell us to bring our deepest concerns to bring our cares, to bring our anxieties, to bring our needs to God. But we must bring our needs to God humbly, willing to submit to His perfect plan. You realize that prayer is not some news report that we make to God. He knows everything perfectly. You say, but i got to tell Him. I mean, He says, make my requests known unto Him, correct. But I think there is a mentality, there's a heart set that we enter into prayer and we must resist the temptation to act like we're alerting God to something he otherwise would not be aware of. He knows our heart and and we enter with confidence, reminding ourselves that he knows our concerns. We confess our sins, we admit our dependence, we lay out our hearts and we realize that as we enter into prayer, he is already concerned with us and for us. We're not breaking news to God, he already knows. That helps us pray in greater faith. Don't bargain with God in prayer. God, if you will get me out of this service, I promise I will live right. If you will tell this guy to wrap it up, please, God, I will, I will do the best I've ever done. Prayer is not bargaining with God. If, if you will help me with this, I'll work on that. You pray with a huge theological misunderstanding when you pray bargaining with God like that. Because ultimately, prayer is changing us Prayer is not changing God. It's not to say that God doesn't command us to pray, that God is always sovereign over all things, but he is simultaneously loving towards us. We're not trying to bargain with God. One author said, prayer is not our bargaining chip with a reluctant genie. It's our opportunity to commune with the creator and redeemer who loves us. We're we're coupling up this study on Sunday morning with a Wednesday night Bible study, just studying the Lord's Prayer. What Jesus teaches us at the onset of the Lord's Prayer is to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. The, The entire communication with God begins with the awareness that we have an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. And so when we get down to the point we realize we're not bargaining with him, we're not trying to break through or, or, or break down some wall of hostility, we are simply talking to our Father which is in heaven. It changes how we pray. And we have to pray. God is powerful, right? You believe that. I mean, if God wanted to grow vegetation without sunlight and without rain, he could do it. But he has chosen, according to his sovereign plan, to have vegetation respond to rain. It needs it, the soil and the nutrients in it, and the sunlight in a process that we scientists call, anyone? I was just testing you. It's, you know, that one. Now, here's the thing. God could, God could 
help with every decision. God could, God could do anything, but he, according to his sovereign plan, has chosen to respond, has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. We must be praying. We're not bargaining with a reluctant genie trying to get him to do our bidding. We are aligning ourselves. We're communing with our heavenly father. And so herein lies the principle. Pray and don't faint. Don't quit praying. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus was telling a story. And the story that Jesus tells, he begins by saying, here's the point. Here is the moral to the story. Here is what I want you to derive from the story that I'm going to tell you. In Luke 18, verse 1, here's what we read. Jesus spake a parable unto them to this end. Here's the point of the story. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. So the point of the coming story is don't quit praying. What's the story? Jesus goes on and he says in verse 2, There was in a city... A judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. He's telling us in a city, there is an immoral judge. He does not fear God in heaven. There is no inherent righteousness nor justice in him. Nor does he have any respect. He really does not care about the people whom he presides over. And in verse 3, and there was a widow in that city. And she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. Now, this widow in that society had absolutely nothing going for her. She had no legal standing. She has an adversary, but she has no advocate. She cannot take any bribe to this immoral judge to get him to do her bidding. She is utterly and completely stuck. And the Bible says, as she asks in verse 4, And the immoral judge would not deal with her adversary for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, now we're listening, here's his inner monologue. Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. She is going to wear me out. This widow, who has no advocate and has no money, says, I can only use the one thing I've got, that is persistence. And I'm going to keep coming to the judge and keep coming to the judge and keep coming to the judge until he responds to me. I'm not going to stop. Have you ever been around an incessant talker? Experiencing it right now, aren't you? It's tough. It's a cross to bear. Ever been around a small child that just boom, 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 banter? And you think to yourself, do you ever... Take a breath. I'll just be pastoral. Do you ever take a breath? You ever caved in against all of your parenting instincts to the desire of your child because you just couldn't take it anymore? Oh, eat the cookie. Is it going to stop you for a minute? Eat the cookie. That's the principle that's being communicated. Now let's pause because Jesus is going to sum this up. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge saith. Listen, 
Be reminded, here's what the unjust judge said. Because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her. Now, I'll read on. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now, let's just pause for a second. Here is the unjust judge on the bad, immoral end of the spectrum. God draws the line of distinction and he says, now look at God who is holy and just and loving and imagine that if the unjust judge will capitulate or respond to the widow who is persistent, don't you think God will avenge those who cry unto him day and night? Now within that is a little bit of a condition. We are praying day and night. The the communication of this whole thing was set out at the beginning. Pray and don't faint. Don't quit praying. Don't stop praying. That is the whole point. You know the temptation to give up is real. The temptation to give up is real. Not just in prayer, even spiritually speaking. Why try? To what end? All through the Bible, we are exhorted to keep on going. And sometimes the only handle that we have in the dark tunnels of life is the principle and the mandate, don't stop. Take another step. Keep going. In 2 Corinthians 4, we read this. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. 15 verses later, we read, for which cause we faint not, though our inward man perish, yeah, outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day in Ephesians 3. I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Ye brethren, we read in 2 Thessalonians 3, be not weary in well-doing. In Galatians 6, 9, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Don't quit. Well, there's no payoff yet. Don't quit. Take another step. Don't faint. Don't cave in. We all face quitting points. The temptation to cave in and the temptation to give up is real, even in prayer. And that's why Jesus steps in and says, even in prayer, don't stop praying. Pray on, pray on. When we feel the discouragement coming on about prayer, Jesus says, pray. Prayer is the remedy for discouragement. Get this. You must pray your way through the weariness of praying. When you don't feel like praying, pray. Now, I already know because you've been sitting here for long enough to have assessed me as an elite level athlete. How many of you have had that thought? Any, anyone, has anyone had that thought? I don't know what your definition of elite level athlete is. This is it. This is it. When I was young, I played basketball, and I liked to be the center of attention. Now, that part you may have. How many of you have gathered that? <laughs> that, that part you have picked up on. Well, I like to be the one that scores. I want to be the one that scores. And you realize that in basketball, you don't score if you don't shoot, right? Well, on occasion, on rare occasion, because of my elite level athleticism, I would go through a shooting slump, which means I would just miss a lot of the shots that I was taking. But I had this principle that I had 
instilled in my own mind, and that is this. Shooters shoot, and you shoot your way out of a slump. Just because you're not hitting anything doesn't mean you involve your other teammates. It just means just keep on shooting because the slump will eventually end. Shoot your way out of a slump. Do you realize that what Jesus is communicating is something along these lines? I get it. The temptation to quit is real. And we all come up against quitting points. And when you come up against a quitting point in your prayer, I say pray your way out of a slump. Pray your way out of discouragement in prayer. Pray your way into a lifestyle of prayer. Pray your way into a habit of prayer. Pray. Why? Because the judge in this story didn't fear God and he did not fear man. The widow in this story was the epitome of helplessness. And yet, because of persistence, the judge responded and Jesus taught us, God is in control and God will respond. Now, I've got to stop for a second because I need to say this. You and I critically misunderstand God and prayer when we think prayer is about bugging God long enough or nagging God hard enough that we'll wear him down to the point where he meets our needs. God is sovereign. God is a loving heavenly father. We must not conceive of prayer as overcoming God's reluctance, but our continued prayer communicates our laying hold on his willingness. You and I should always pray and not faint because God's ways are just and his timing is always perfect. Now I want you to hear the end of the story that Jesus tells. We're in Luke 18. Here's what he says in the second part of Luke 18, 8. He says this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth? Which is this, and here's the spiritual challenge. He will show up. Will you show up when he shows up? When he shows up, will you be there? Will you persist or will you lose heart? Will you give in and throw in the towel before the Lord brings that speedy justice? God is always listening. Are you praying? It's your best and only option. You say, well, pastor, what if my struggle in this life never finds an end in this life? Let's go back to the Lord's prayer just for a second. And let's listen to Jesus as he says, when you pray, pray this way, thy kingdom come. Do you realize that as part of our prayer lifestyle, we should be praying for the Lord's kingdom to come and be established? And we should be praying for the end of all sin. We should be praying for the pouring out of wrath on all sin. We should be praying for the moment in time where Jesus Christ is seated on his throne and justice and holiness reigns everywhere. John as he has the vision of heaven in the book of Revelation, as we get to the end of it, Jesus is, is talking to John. He says, I'm telling you this is true. This is happening. And John offers up this simple prayer. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Please come back, Lord. Do you realize that some of the struggles that we have in this life will not end until we're in the next life? But if we are in the next life, it is an answer to our prayer of thy kingdom come. Lord Jesus, please come. When the Lord comes, will he find faith or will he find a bunch of quitters who needlessly bore pain and forfeited their own peace? 
or will he find people who are praying? What I would venture to say is you're a lot like me. And I don't mean that you're all elite level athletes. That's just not for everybody, very few of us. But where I do think we're a lot alike is we're not praying like we should. And we really don't even comprehend it. But here's what we've established. Everything by prayer, always. And prayer is not a posture. Prayer is not a formulaic statement. Prayer is not a bargaining chip. Prayer is communication with creator God, the one God who as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, is my heavenly father. It is a submission of my will to his will. It is a release of my kingdom so that his kingdom could come. My will aligning with his will. My heart with his heart. And when I see all of that and then I realize that this should be my lifestyle and I should never quit even when I'm discouraged. Pray it through, pray it through, pray it through. I realize that I'm really kind of failing God. And the whole point of coming to church, the whole point of gathering together is so that we can be exhorted and edified, and the scripture can build us up. So when we're confronted with truth like this, we conclude the service, and here's what we should do. We should pause, we should be humble enough and submissive enough to what the Holy Spirit has told us, seize the moment we have remaining, and say, God, help me in my prayer life. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.